we are still in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you want to know what the purpose of creation is? Do you want to know what the purpose of redemption is? Do you want to know what the purpose is even when God has to tolerate everything He has tolerated through all of human history? It's so that He can give His Son a kingdom. And in that kingdom are people who God the Father has chosen, has given to His Son. His Son redeems them. And when they are glorified, and when everything comes all to its completion and the all in all, then the Son gives everything back to the Father. Did you know that? That's the purpose. That's what God is doing. He has given His Son a people, us here and all of His people all throughout the uh, time of mankind, people who will love Him, that will love Jesus Christ, that will worship Him, that will adore Him, who will serve Him forever and ever and ever, in perfect joy and love and peace, perfect purity. And that is God's plan. Incredible. And that's the goal. And Christ is capturing His kingdom. Even right now, He's doing this. It's in the process. So are you ready for chapter 15 as we continue on? Chapter 15, we're starting at verse 20. Uh, Why don't uh, we all stand as we've been doing all morning, up and down, up and down. We want to make sure that we're all awake today as we worship our God. Here's the Word of the Lord. But now, Christ is risen from the dead. Oh, I've got to say that again. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For He has put all things under His feet. But when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He who put all things under Him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. That's the Word of the Lord. Let's pray to the Lord of the Word. Father, we thank You for this great, awesome passage that's before us. Help us have a little more understanding of what this means in Your whole redemptive plan. We praise You for all things. Amen. We continue. And you can be seated. Thank you. We're uh, moving right along in 1 Corinthians, and we actually have. We have covered 1 Corinthians quite rapidly. This chapter underscores, magnifies the grand doctrine of resurrection like no other treatise ever written. Even in the rest of the Bible, there's nothing like this chapter on the resurrection. So complete. This is a grand doctrine. It's the heart of the Gospel. It's absolutely essential to believe this Gospel, this resurrection. And Paul has established that in the first 19 verses. He continues on with that. Um, But he's answering the Corinthians who were doubting uh, the fact that mankind would ever resurrect, that believers would resurrect. Uh, A lot of them aren't necessarily saying that Jesus didn't resurrect. They're just saying that um, believers wouldn't. And that's getting around. That's a heresy that is uh, moving around the church at that time. That philosophers of the Corinthian world did not believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection where a body would be raised back up. 
So they were denying this, so Paul has to give this great uh, treatise on this subject. Now, the, the resurrection is not only looking back to Christ and what He did as He rose in the third day, but it's also the raising of the bodies of all believers throughout the past all the way in um, and we're waiting to go into the future. So we, we all await that resurrection. Nobody's really been raised like Christ yet having those glorified bodies. But this is about the redemptive plan all the way to the consummation. Now the Bible is a story. And when you look at stories you can get a concept. Everybody likes a story. When you're a little baby, you love to hear a story. And then you grow up, you like to keep hearing those stories. And as you get into the adult years, people make up stories. (laughs) They have a little story, but they've got to add to it to make it sound dynamic. So they put something there that's really not there, and that's lying. But (laughs) anyway, people love stories, though. Well, in the story of God, as far as man is concerned, you have creation, the fall, redemption, and the consummation. There's your outline. That's the outline of all of human history. Creation, creation by God. Then the man falls. And then man is redeemed. And then we'll eventually have redeemed bodies. Okay? Resurrection bodies. And that's the consummation. So this is God's story. It's all about God's story. It's not about us. It's all about God. And uh, sometime this is going to all come together. Sometime. And uh, there will be a, that resurrection of the dead. Everything in God's plan is, has to be pointing back to that resurrection. Because it's so vital. If you have no resurrection, then we will not be raised up, and He was not raised up, and then there's no kingdom to come, and this is it. This is the best that we have. Wouldn't this be awful if this is all there is? This is it. This is it, folks. That's no hope. And to realize there are people that say this is it. And everything we're talking about is a hoax. It's a lie. That's what they say. And we're basing it on this resurrection right here. That's why there's a whole chapter on this. Let's start in verse 20. If you know somebody that doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in the Bible, this is a good place to take them and say, what do you do about this? What do you do about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What do you do about that historical man who made a claim and then raised from the dead, then proven, and do you ignore that? Well, here we go. Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Man, is that great news. And has become the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead. Now in Christ, we realize that this is a historic fact. Many witnesses attest to this. God's plan could not be fulfilled had there been not a, or had there not been a resurrection. So it's very important for these Corinthians to know this. We we know it. We know it today. I don't have to convince you, but. Uh, looking back at the way this was written, they had to be reminded, and if they, if they really are believers, they already believe that. You, you cannot be a believer without believing. But there's false teaching going around. Christ was raised never to die again. Now Paul is going to unfold this. He's going to unpack it here for us. This plan of God as far as redemption is concerned. I think it's very exciting. And it gives answers to how we got here, who we are, where we're going. Isn't it great to know? There are people today that don't know how we got here and they don't know where we're going. And so therefore, they don't know what they're doing when they're here. And that's why they do the things they do because they're blinded by the things of this world and by Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Christ is the very first one to rise from the dead. Um, he's the first person. I know you're going to be thinking, wait a minute, we can go back to the time of uh, Elijah and Elisha. And uh, remember the, the widow's son and uh, was raised back to life? And then we get another occasion of that. We say, well, that was a resurrection from the dead, wasn't it? No, because they had to die again. 
Did you ever think about that? Yeah, they were raised back up. Great. Great news. That's fantastic. Great for the family. But they're still going to have to die. And, but one of these days they will be resurrected. Then you can say, well, wait a minute. Oh, see, Jesus raised people from the dead. You know, in the Gospels we have those accounts. And even the Apostles. Peter, you know. Um, and we can go, well, what do you mean? Jesus is the first fruits. So there were other ones before Him or, or after Him or whatever. But those are resuscitations. They are resuscitated back to a life in their same old body. What a disappointment. <laughs> How would you like to have been back here on this earth and, and especially if Jesus wouldn't have been standing there and go, oh, okay. I see. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to treat that wrongly, but um, they definitely were not glorified yet. And uh, they wait for that today too. Now, when he says first fruits, now the Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what? I see this tea right here, and it's presenting a problem with my left foot. So what I'm going to do is put it over here on the table. You guys have done that, right? You guys are looking up. You guys were attentive to that. Okay, the. Um, the first fruits is dealing with um, an agrarian society here. Everybody would know what that, that meant at that time. Um, you have seeds that have been planted and put in the ground, and then you wait, and then up comes the first of the crops, the very first, very first come out of the first to rise. And when you have those, it's like saying, hey, there aren't very many of them, but here they are. This is a guarantee that there are more to come. The first fruits. And so the people knew that. What it's saying, there's going to be a harvest in the future. We're going to have more. And so Jesus is the first fruits. He was the seed buried in the ground. I think he said something like that, didn't he? have to be like a seed, dead and then buried. But then out of that comes life. Explain that. Explain how a seed that is so dead and buried in the ground and it comes to life. Just a seed. Is that hard to understand? It's incredible and I think it's supernatural. But God has worked it into the natural order. So it's really not called a miracle. In another sense it kind of is because it's life coming from God but it happens all the time. And so you plant stuff around the house. You know, you might plant flowers or whatever. You, know, you put it in the ground, boom, it comes up. Wow, this is, you know, I didn't do that. You might water, you might feed it, whatever, but it's really um, something that God causes life. So the fruit's going to come later. So, Paul is drawing something that would come out of the law. You go back to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10. How many here have said, I'm going to read through the Bible. And you read through Genesis and you read through Exodus and read all the stories and you go, oh, that's really really good. Just reason right along and all of a sudden you get into Leviticus. And the bottom drops out. Well, you have a lot of things that we wouldn't ordinarily be used to, the, the feasts and festivals, and those are really cool, and sacrifices, animals, and, and such. But 23.10, we get this word uh, used right here. Um, speak to the children of Israel, God is speaking to Moses, and say to them, when you come into the land which I gave to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. When you go into the land and then you have a harvest, the first of it comes out, then you present it and uh, that is showing that there is more to come. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Remember one of the I am statements? I am the resurrection and the life. The life is given to all of those who are His. So He's life. How can we have uh, life after this? It's through Him. Fruit will come later. We are the fruit. So, resurrection. It's the foundation. The very basis here, um, resurrection is to this. Now, he says asleep, and that's interesting too. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if you read this for the first time and didn't know anything about Christianity, you'd say, okay, fallen asleep? What does that mean? And somebody might say, well, it means you die. It means you're dead. Okay, fallen asleep. Is there such a thing as soul sleep? Do Christians believe in soul sleep? Well, here's what happens. When you die, 
If you're a Christian, you've already been born again, right? But your body here has a problem. And uh, the body really is not going to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15 will tell us that. It can't go there, and I am so glad. So it has to be buried in the ground. And so there it goes. So the body is sleeping, but your soul goes to be with the Lord. You can turn to 2 Corinthians, the very next letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote about that. He's already written about the the, uh, resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, uh, uh, one we're familiar with. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And the way that that is set up, it's saying it's one or the other. If you're absent from the body, you are with the Lord. If you're not present with the Lord in His presence right now, then you are in the body. One or the other. That's the way it is. Uh, The first seven verses talks about that. Uh, We're in a tent right now. We're we're groaning, you know. Um, But... um, Verse 6, so that we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Okay? Right now we're living by faith, not by sight. But one of these days we're going to be with Him and uh, we're going to be out of this body. And then we will have another body. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, another statement. Paul says this too. And he knew well what happened after you die, as far as the body is concerned. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Right? To depart, to leave, to get out of this body, to be with God, to be with Christ. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. While I remain in this body, I can be more needful to you. I can be here amongst you and serve you. So, uh, Paul makes it clear, 2 Corinthians, also in Philippians. And uh, so he answers that. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to say what happens with the, what about the new body. So the body is said to be asleep. Often the Bible refers to that. He's asleep. Where's Lazarus? He's asleep. His soul was alive, but at the same time his body was dead. Um, that body was raised up out of the, the ground, uh, though, and he had to use that body again. But we we await to adjoin to the body one day. All right. Now back to First Corinthians 15. Okay, Christ rose from the dead, but how does that affect me? And my resurrection. I have no problem with Him raising from the dead, but what about my resurrection? How does that make it possible? He rose from the dead, but how can I be raised? And that's what philosophers would be asking. And they said, it's impossible. It's a fleshly thing, and and it's it's, uh, lower than the Spirit. So, Paul here makes this really good. It makes a great analogy. So he says in verse 21, For since by man came death, by man... Also came the resurrection of the dead. So at verse 21, and he's going to use the idea of Adam. 22 says, For as an Adam all die, even so Christ all shall be made alive. He's going to start with the head of the natural order as far as human beings are concerned. Adam was created. The first man created the head of the natural order. He is the federal head. They're uh, reformers. Often referred to that as the federal head. He's our head. He represents us. Christianity. I want you to catch this. You might be able to use this to unbelieving people. Christianity has the only viable answer to the predicament of mankind. A lot of people don't admit that we have a sinful world and we have sinful people and they don't want to even use that word, do they? But why is it all you have to do is turn on TV, watch the news or watch Entertainment Tonight, watch any of those shows and watch how they um, tell on each other. Hollywood show exposes how bad mankind can be. It's incredible. 
how they want to show how they are. How about the, um, the Real Housewives of New York or the Real Housewives of Atlanta? Anybody ever heard of that show? That gets crazy. I mean, the women are mad at each other. They're yelling at each other. and You know, they have them all dressed up, you know, and they're, they know they're on TV and so they look like they are the coolest people in the world and they go to the country clubs and everything is all really cool, you know, and, and uh, they're rich and they have whatever cars they drive and whatever palaces they live in and then you see them getting upset and mad over the least little things. It's incredibly terrible. And that is how mankind acts. But we know all the crime and everything that's going on. And how can people really explain this? Man is in a terrible predicament. What are we going to do with this? Well, the world comes up with all the answers. And you have the psychologists, and they're going to give us the real reasons why Johnny wound up... I'm sorry, Johnny. I gotta use another <laughs> Billy. Do we have a Billy in here? Okay. Billy goes out and kills somebody when he's sixteen years old. Matter of fact, he goes into the school and shoots ten people, ten kids. Why did he do that? Well, it was because of the environment that he was raised. You don't understand what part of the town that he grew up in. You don't understand that he came from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, he was just born that way, he couldn't help it. Uh, you know, it's. Is that, <laughs> I knew I got in trouble there whenever I personally said that. Now we're in trouble, okay. But you got you got to switch that to Billy, though, okay. And he didn't have education. He didn't have the right kind of education. The bad surroundings, the friends that he grew up with, or the gangs that were around. And we know the story. We know what the world says. That, and that's the answers that they offer for why the world is the way it is. How about lack of self-esteem? That's a pretty big one too, isn't it? That's the problem. He just doesn't have good self-esteem. No, that is the problem. He thinks too highly of himself. That's the problem with suicide. They think too highly of themselves. They're thinking about themselves. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're not to be thinking about ourselves because it's not about us. It's about the great glory of God. We know what happened. We as Christians know exactly why people do the things they do. Adam. It was Adam. It actually was. Adam made me do it. Still can't say that. But it is called original sin. Now, granted, that was original in the sense that Adam did the first sin, but we all have original sin. The sin that's been handed down to him. That is our nature. We are bad. Uh, you guys seen the YouTube John Piper video? And they got they got Michael Jackson singing the song Bad. You remember that song back in the eighties? Bad, bad 90s, I don't know. Anyway, John Piper, and they, they've got him uh, um, almost uh, all the way highlighted through this video where he says, I'm bad! I'm bad! And of course, Michael Jackson sings, bad, bad. And, and then, they bring, then they show John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and um, some, some other people that are in the Reformed camp. And it, it's really cute. It's, it's really, really good. John Piper says he doesn't necessarily endorse it, but he doesn't say anything bad about it either. So, whatever, whatever it's worth. But um, we are not sinners because we sin. You guys heard this before, right? We sin because we are sinners. See. You say, what's the difference? Well, that's our nature. We are sinners. Everybody that's ever born has that nature. We are born into the human race. We've already inherited the sin. And that's how God defines it. And uh, it comes because of uh, Adam's sin. It was passed on. Uh, It's just like getting into the bloodstream if you want to physically apply that but it's it, there it is he is our federal head who represents us and you can say well that's not fair I didn't sin he did it and it caused me to be a sinner to start with and there, therefore that, that's why I sin well 
Your nature is a sinner. But the thing is, um, if we can think about, for instance, a representative form of government, when you vote for somebody, you understand that they are representing, hopefully, what you believe in, and what you believe in is going to uh, hopefully be produced into what they're going to do. When they are voted into office, you want them to do what you and other people believe in. That's why you voted for them. He, that person is the federal head in that sense. He's a representative for you, that candidate. So, Adam is the representative of the whole human race. One man is going to affect everybody that's ever born in the human race. Now, that's an incredible thought. And the thing is, is we are responsible for that sin. We're responsible, even though it was transferred from Adam, we know uh, it was almost like we were there, if you can kind of put this as a mystery in your mind, it's hard to understand, but we were there when Adam sinned. We were in his loins, in a sense, is the way that the Reformers have defined this. Um, not really, we were not there, but in another sense, as, as it would be passed on, and later here we would arrive here on this earth, we inherit total depravity. Total depravity. That is the way that all of mankind is. Of course, so many texts dealing with that. I won't be going to all those because we have quite a lengthy section here anyway. But in Romans 3, none of us are any good. We're all in depravity. Every part of us. What does total mean? Every part of us was affected. That's our mind, our emotions, which is your feelings, your will, was affected. Everything. You can say, well, I can think. I can think pretty good. Yeah, no kidding. It's amazing that you can still use your mind, but it's not like before the fall. The mind was much more incredible in Adam than any human today because they were affected by the sin. And Adam was affected by the sin. He fell. And he didn't have that mind that he had had before. And the emotions. People can't control their emotions. What's the problem? And the will. Now all we're going to do is what our mind thinks. And so therefore, if you are dead spiritually, Ephesians chapter 2, then you're not going to be able to think on salvific terms. You're not going to think of redemption. You're not going to be able to know who God is and what sin is because the mind has been affected there. You can't know God until God intervenes that He comes in and changes your mind, your emotions, and your will. Then you're able to place faith in Him as He's regenerated. That's the idea of total depravity. Every part and whole is tainted with sin. Every one of us. And so we're all in the same boat when we're born like that and are raised up in this life. Now, we're not as bad as we could be. Man can be really bad. I mean, he can do even worse things than others. Of course, that automatically makes you think of uh, the Hitlers and Stalins and Mao Zedong and uh, on and on. All those people who have killed millions of people, done terrible things, but they're not even as bad as they could, but they could even be worse. That's pretty bad. And you can say, well, I haven't done things like that. Well, you still have an inclination. The inclination is to sin. The inclination is not to worship God until you're regenerated. The sin of Adam catapulted the whole human race, every human that was ever going to be born, into the reality of death. There's not anybody here in the world that can deny the fact that there is death. There are some kooky people who say, well, I'm not ever going to die. 
because I have enough belief that I will remain. I have actually talked to people who have said that. I'm saying, you mean you could live to be five, six hundred years, thousand years old? Yes, and I plan on it. Why? Why would you want to live in this body? God's got something else in mind. Why would you want to do that? So, the consequence is death. All mankind. There's a causal relationship between the death of Adam and every man, woman, and child that's ever been born. Death. So that's why he says here in 21, for since by man came death. We have it. We can't deny it. People die every day. There's somebody dying right now. There's another person dying right now. Another one is dying. Um, the seasons of the year, you can see the the, uh, the flowers are out now, but then they die out, and they will even during the season, you know, they just die. And then fall comes, and the leaves, you know, they turn, and then they just they fall off. Your, things just die, and we constantly got it going through us. What sin has done? It affects everything, everything. You could leave this stuff right up here, leave it for a couple of weeks or so. It's going to affect all of us. I mean, I mean, we have to fight to keep things going, you know, and, and to keep them fresh and, and alive. Jesus is the one who gives a life. But desperate to all men. Let's go to Romans 5. I've been spending enough time on this without going to a text. But to understand this Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam, this is one of the greatest texts to go to, Romans 5. And by the way, um, it actually, whenever it mentions Adam, it also is going to deal with creation. And there are people that says there was actually people who lived, there was a gap, there was a gap theory, and there were people who lived before Adam. Don't buy, buy that kind of baloney because that's absolutely false. Because you look in Romans 5, the first sin that ever happened, and sin caused death, didn't it? And and we see Paul say that right here. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. All the way from Adam, all the way to when the law came out, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. They didn't do it out of... Uh, just straight disobedience, but they're still held responsible, who is a type of Him, of Christ, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense, sin, Adam, many died, everybody, but much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many, all the ones who are believers. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Even though we have many offenses, there's one gift, this justification one man brings it. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one Adam, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Adam, the first Adam. Jesus, the second Adam, or the second man. You're born once through Adam. If you have been graced by Christ, you born again in Jesus Christ. Born once, die twice. Born twice, you die once. Body. We inherited the sin nature. And you see that how it all spread. The principle is one man sinned, that man died, death spread to all mankind. Easy enough? What we come to understand is that all men sinned in Adam. All the race was in his loins and he sinned. We all sinned in him. We're all responsible for that. We all die. And so from Adam on, there is solidarity of guilt. There is solidarity of fallenness. We all have the same corruption. 
dead is dead. You know? There are different degrees, I guess, in the sense as far as length of time of decay, but we all have that same corruption. We, for Christ, possess a fallen and sinful nature. We die in Adam. But there's good news. There is good news! Aren't you glad? See, that's the predicament of mankind right there. That answer I just gave for must have been about 15 minutes. Probably can be just summed up. We just said it, so I'm not going to say it again. There is where man is at. That's the problem of mankind. We, of all people, can tell people, here's the problem right here. Here's why this is going on. Here's why we're having this problem. Christ paid the penalty for sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? His righteousness is given to us. He conquered death and it's no longer any power over any of us. Death is no power. It's been broken. So now we go to that second man as Paul relates to us. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Right there. Bingo. Paul goes right for it. And he says, Adam, dead, Christ, life. Here we are. The resurrection of the dead. And this is how we are involved in all of this. He's the head of this race. He's a spiritual leader. Adam was the first man, the federal head. Christ is now the head of the church. And we are represented by Him. What a representative, huh? He defeated death, raised back to life, and we are in Him are resurrected. In Romans 6, it's like we were present in a sense, in a mystical, mystery-type sense, but we were there at His death and His burial and His resurrection because we are people of death. We die in Christ. The old man is dead spiritually and we rise up and now we have life. So you are already born again. You are a new creature. You just happen to be incarcerated in the flesh. New man is in the flesh. The new man hates the flesh because the flesh loves to do the things that it wants to do. But the new man, the Holy Spirit, who resides in us, hates those things. And so there is a war going on in the flesh constantly. And the devil is warring at you. And the world is warring against you. So at first, here's what we have now. We have an order. We have an order here. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. So, first fruits. Jesus. He's the first one resurrected, and He guarantees that there will be more. It's all the ones that are the saints. All the ones who are believers. He's already raised we're waiting for the ones, the dead in Christ, and those who are alive in Christ will see Him and will be caught up together with Him in the clouds. The rest of the harvest will receive glorified bodies like Christ. Right now, bodies are staying in the graves and they're corrupting and rotting and decaying, right? That's what the bodies do. Believers are with the Lord. They're absent from the body, present with the Lord. And they're called just, they're called spirits of just men made perfect. You ever heard of that? The spirits of just men, that's justified. We've been declared righteous. We uh, read that earlier this morning about justification. We've been declared righteous. They have been made perfect. They are no longer sinful. Because they're not in their bodies right now. They're, and they're present with the Lord. They're waiting for a new body. But they are spirits right now. They have personality. They, uh, they have that same kind of person that they were here, only not sinful. 
not in physical form, uh, not even in a glorified physical form, but they do wait for Christ to return to this earth and the glorified bodies that will be given to them. That's what they're waiting for. And when's that going to happen? Well, verse 23 says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then afterward, those who are Christ at His coming. And the word is parousia. uh, The arrival. The presence. I quoted 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to turn there, this is uh, the rapture. Or the rapio. Or... It's a Greek word for this. Harpazo. Rapio is Latin for rapture, and that's how we get that word today. It's taken out of the Latin word, and the English is transferred to rapture. Um, or you can say harpazo, which is the same thing. For the Lord... Uh, verse 15. The Thessalonians were really worried. Somebody's going around saying, hey, listen, the uh, Lord has already come back, and uh, this is it, folks. <laughs> we didn't get to go. We didn't get to go uh, with, with Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. They said, we're not going to go before they are. The ones that who are dead, asleep, the dead, um, they're going to precede us. There's another order, see? Christ the first fruits, then those who are dead in Christ, the believers, and then those who are alive... Right, And there are going to be people still here on this earth that are Christians when Christ comes back and they're going to meet Him in the air and immediately they'll be transferred to another body. Just like that. Twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15 says that. So this is what happens at this rapture. Until the coming of the Lord, no means proceed those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's your word, rapio, uh, or hapazo. Caught up together with them, those dead saints, the dead bodies, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Rather comforting, isn't it? Exciting. That means that that's getting the new body, right there. First Corinthians fifteen, and that's exactly where we're at. Near the end of that chapter, he says something very similar. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is something that nobody knows, and we're telling you now. We shall not all sleep. There's that word again. The bodies. But we shall all be changed. That means not everybody is going to actually die in the same sense that other people die. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? At His coming there will be a great super resurrection of the godly of all the ages. And these passages... Whenever it talks about harpazo there, it means to seize, to snatch, to take away. He's going to take us up. If He came back right now, He would snatch us right up. We'd go up. There are the dead in Christ and here we come. Like that. Seized, snatched away. It's all by His supernatural power as far as the body is concerned. Our spirits are coming back with Him. Now, imagine that. And we'll meet our bodies there in the air. Huh. A transformation to the glorified body. So the resurrection of the saints is going to be in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but we look to that. Pretty incredible, isn't it? You know, we all, we all know this. But you know what? It's 
quite a mystery to most people. They have no idea what's going to happen after they die. That's it. And they don't care. Say, don't you care? What happens if uh, Christianity really is true? I could care less. (laughs) I've gotten a lot of answers from people like that. I could care less. I'm going, my. If there is an eternity, you're telling me that you don't care? It doesn't matter? I mean, that's probably one of the most important questions in, in the whole universe, isn't it? You, you haven't even thought about that? You thought about it and you just don't want to think about it. Well, why? Well, usually it, it means that they'll have to change their style of living. <laughs> they don't want to do that. A transformation. Wow, that is incredible. This is not something to mess around with. This is something that is true. 24 through 28. Now we get the culmination of the ages. <clears throat> then comes in. Okay. Now you have that rapture. We have our, we're in the glorified bodies. Then he's saying, okay, but what about what about all this end stuff? What, 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 this consummation, right? This is the highlight of all of God's story. The consummation. That's where everything is heading. It's not about right now. God is using that, but it's pointing to that end thing, the consummation. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for He has put all things under His feet. But when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He who put all things under Him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will be subject to Him who put all things under Him that God may be all in all. Sounds a lot like the same kind of stuff there going on, right? Well, what's happening? It's a glorious passage, folks. This is a tremendously supremely glorious passage. I want you to catch the excitement of this. This is the redemption. We have been redeemed, but we are going to be redeemed. The spirit man, new man, has already been redeemed. The body has not been redeemed. The final redemption. The bodies will be redeemed. The word here is teleos. Then comes the end. Teleos. Telephone, telegraph, television, tele. It's the fulfillment. Jesus said, it is finished. It is teleos. It's complete. It's fulfilled. This is the goal. This is the objective. This is where it's all going to. The consummation of all things. And this is what this is all about. The story... You are the actors. We are the actors in this story. We are broken actors on a broken stage and we wait for the one who's going to come back and make it all right. Perfect. Do you want to know what the purpose of creation is? Do you want to know what the purpose of redemption is? Do you want to know what the purpose is as we have to go through a life that's full of challenges and some things that are very difficult, sometimes every day? (laughs) Do you want to know what that's all about? Well, it's because God the Father wanted to give the Son a kingdom. And now that kingdom are people who are in that, that were sinners that had to be redeemed. And Christ came to this earth and He redeemed them so that they would love Him, worship Him, adore Him, that they would be consumed by Him and being in perfect joy and peace and love. That's the goal. Christ is taking this kingdom. It's a kingdom of resurrected human beings. Can you imagine? They're all just out and about glorified. And nobody will be sinning against anybody else. The redeemed of the ages, the church, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints. We're talking about everybody all the way up from Old Testament time all the way up through New Testament time to the time Christ comes back. They're all raised. They all will be in heaven. Then comes the end. Turn to Revelation chapter 5 and you have Jesus. He's already made the claims, but He's coming back to claim it. 
He defeated the enemy already at the cross, but we await Him to come back. Uh, He takes the scroll in verse 9. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. This is Christ. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. We will reign with Him on the earth. He is a king. We also are kings. We'll be reigning with Him. We are kings. We are priests. You can say, Dennis, how can you say that? That sounds all blasphemy. Well, I just read it here in Revelation. I just said that. He said, uh, He's made us kings. He's made us priests. Peter said that too. We are kings and priests because of Jesus Christ. We're going to reign with Him. We're already doing it, but there is a final consummation which has not taken place yet. We do wait for that. Chapter 19, we have to look at that. That's Christ coming back. Christ coming back to this earth. Oh, quite a doctrine. You have to talk about the things of the future. Look at verse 14. Here's the Word of God. It's it's Him. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following on white horses. Who's the fine linen? Who are the people in that? White and clean. They're made righteous. That could be angels, but I think as we look at it, we find out that coming back with Him, um, the saints. Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword that which He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will rule the nations. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is that? Jesus Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords. Chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is He who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Who are these people? These are believers. Who are they? Believers. They're part of the first resurrection. First resurrection are all believers. Second resurrection that you see later on are going to be the ones who will be cast into the lake of fire. And that will be the unbelievers who will be resurrected and put into bodies that are fit for hell. Made for hell. And they will get those bodies. When will this happen? Well, when He has abolished all rule, all authority. There's no other rule Himself than Himself. He's called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. When He has abolished all authority. When He has abolished all the other powers. And there are some terrible authority powers that are out there across the world. What's even happening in our nation, our leaders. When He's destroyed all of His enemies puts them under his feet. A king um, would sit on his throne and underneath his feet. Matter of fact, they'd even put their feet on them. That would be the enemy. It might be the captain. It might be the king. And they would uh, uh, bring them to humility by uh, uh, stepping on their neck. Here he's showing that he is king and there's no other kings. A, A very graphic picture. He's on His elevated throne. All of His enemies are below Him. When He's sovereign over everything, and He is right now, but when it's shown, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is not being done when sin happens. Although He can use that sin, but He does not have sin in Him. When there's no other ruler, when there's no other power, no other authority, Christ absolutely, supremely reigns with His saints. In Revelation 20, we understand that Christ takes full rule. In fact, it starts there in Revelation 19. and describes Him as the King of Kings. And we see how He seizes the beast and the false prophet and all of them are thrown into the lake of fire which burns with the brimstone. And this is really the end. 
This is His reign on earth in that kingdom. And in Revelation 20, we have a thousand years, a thousand years, and a thousand years, and a thousand, six times a thousand years, and you have the saints with Him. And we see that that is a great, beautiful time period uh, when we reign with Him. The saints are part of the first resurrection. And uh, we see that in verse 7 of chapter 20. He takes, uh, takes Satan and throws him in a lake of fire. The great white throne uh, appears. The resurrection of the dead, the ones who are not believers, then will be judged at this great white throne judgment. We will not be judged there. Thank the Lord we have been judged at the cross. Our sins have been taken away. We are forgiven. Heaven and earth will flee away and the resurrection of the unjust and the resurrection of the damned they are all going to be judged. They will be given bodies fit for hell, cast into this this hell. This is a new heaven and new earth then. And Christ and God will dominate in glory. That is where history is going. There's a lot of things to happen yet, but it's heading that way. The picture is continuing. The last enemy will be abolished is death. Has Satan been abolished yet? No. He, what does he do? He roars about like a... What? A lion. He is causing all of the sin and the temptation that we have. So he is alive and well. He has not been thrown in the lake of fire. He has not been imprisoned. But during a thousand years, he will be imprisoned where he cannot tempt the nations. There will not be any of that. And you say, wait a minute. God is not subjected to Christ. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that He has accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. Everything is subjection to Christ except God the Father. Because the Son is submitting to the Father. So, what about that kingdom that Christ has? Well, He does have a dominion. He does have rule, doesn't He? The Son hands back the kingdom to the Father. This is so powerful as we see it in 1 Corinthians 15 and we close out with this. He received a redeemed humanity. His bride. Where is bride? When all the enemies are destroyed and He's the King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign of the universe, when everything is under Him except God Himself, He will then take that kingdom, all that the Father has given to Him, and He'll give it back to the Father. In kind of like a reciprocal act. The Father gave it to the Son. Now the Son gives it back to the Father and shows how much love He has and God will be all in all. This is, I think, a great inter-Trinitarian way to understand this and it's beyond our comprehension. We really don't understand it. That's how the Trinity works. Perfect submission, perfect authority in every act and in everything they do. We don't understand that, do we? It's a gift of the Father's love in this reciprocal act. The Son hands the kingdom back to the Father. The grandeur, imagine this, the crowning event in all of the universe. This This is really amazing. How can you fathom this? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own world. We get wrapped up in very personal terms. We think salvation and redemption is all about me. Folks, do you see where it's really pointing? Yeah, you're an actor in on this. Praise God for it. It's a great grace. But look at this. It's better for us to think about salvation in these vast, almost incomprehensible terms that we have just seen. The salvation that you are involved with because the grace of God gave that to you. It's really not about us. It's about the infinite love, mercy, and grace, the fullness of the Father. And then about His Son and the love for Him and this gift that He gives the Son, this redeemed humanity. All that the Father gives to Me will come, 
restored to God that He may be all in all. The Son came as a servant of God into the world to take back to God souls who were sinners that are now redeemed. To take them back and then present them to the Father. He has conquered death. Jesus did that. By His own resurrection, He did that. He provided a full resurrection for all those who believe. He'll take them all. He'll present them to the Father and Himself will be subject to the Father. God is all in all and in because the Son gives back what the Father has given to Him in submission. It's a magnificent picture of the final paradise gained. And you know what? It all happens because of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.